part of the reason why it was surprising that there wasn't a lot of research on this in the academic world prior to, you know, the 1990s was that, at least from my perspective, this was the obvious thing to look at. Okay. Any of our theories of market inefficiency are going to have some sort of story where the market either overreacts to information or underreacts to information. If the market tends to underreact information, you expect to see continuation. Stock price goes up, you know, from 10 to 15, but it was an underreaction. So then later it goes up from 15 to 20. Or it could be an overreaction. It goes from 10 to 20 and then back to 15. So from our perspective, that was sort of the obvious type of test that you'd want to run if you want to think, you know, as first principles on market efficiency, does the market react appropriately to information? Today's podcast is brought to you by the Freedom Day Dividend ETF. We know Ryan Kruger very well. Ryan and his team have been managing money for private clients through many market cycles since 1996. Their strategy is focused on finding companies with the potential to increase their dividends. Now, for the first time, they're offering an actively managed ETF for investors everywhere. The ticker symbol is MBOX, M-B-O-X, as in mailbox, designed for shareholders searching for opportunities to receive more mailbox money. The fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses must be considered carefully before investing. For this and other important information about the fund, please visit freedomdaydividend.com for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I have the privilege of talking to Sheridan Tittman, Professor of Finance at the University of Texas at Austin, where he holds the McAllister Centennial Chair in Financial Services at the McComb School of Business. Those in the academic finance world, as well as practitioners using quantitative and momentum investing techniques, know Sheridan as his 1993 paper with Narasimhan Jagadesh is considered the seminal research on momentum-based stock selection strategies. We talk to Sheridan about momentum investing, why it works, and how to best measure it. Our conversation then goes into other areas of his research, including value in glamour cities and the impact of geographic location on a firm's value and much, much more. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Sheridan Tittman. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, how are you doing? We are excited to have you on. Um, you know, I was recently in touch with one of our previous guests on the podcast, Partha Mohanran, who's a professor at the University of Toronto. And I told him we were having you on and he actually called you a legend. Well, that's very generous. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. But with two, I think you've published over 250 research papers and articles. Um, you've been cited over 60,000 times. So I think in many academic finance circles and probably a lot of quantitative firms that utilize momentum, you, you probably are a legend in a lot of people's minds. So let me read you a passage from the book, Quantitative Momentum, which was written by our friends over at Alpha Architect. I think what I'm going to read provides some interesting context and color as to what was happening, um, in the market at that time and how it was changing. And after I read this, I'd like you to, um, comment on it if you don't mind. So it says, momentum rises from the ashes. Finally, in the early 1990s, Jagadish and Tittman revitalized the findings from Levy's 1967 paper in their pioneering 1993 article, Returns to Buying Winners and Selling Losers, Implications for Market Efficiency. 
The paper essentially replicated the spirit of the analysis conducted by Levy in 67, but with the benefit of more data, computational power, and willingness on behalf of the establishment to publish research that questioned the efficient market hypothesis. By now, the cracks in the efficient market hypothesis armor were getting bigger. Interestingly enough, Jagadish and Tittman never mentioned the word momentum in their original paper, even though their paper is considered by many to be the seminal work on modern error stock selection momentum strategies. Okay, I, in terms of what was going on in the academic world at that point in time, um, there were a lot more people questioning the idea of market efficiency. Um, so it's, it's clear that the profession uh, was open to the ideas. It's still somewhat of a mystery to me that we went from 1967 when Levy, you know, talked about uh, these strategies where, again, he had a test that wasn't particularly powerful and um, what he found wasn't that strong. But we went, you know, over 20 years uh, without people doing a serious job of, you know, doing what Jaganish and I did was very seriously to look at Romito strategies. Can you give us an overview of what you found and what your research uncovered in your paper, Returns to Buying Winners and Selling Losers, Implications for Market Efficiency? Okay, let me just first say that um, part of the reason why it was surprising that there wasn't a lot of research on this in the academic world prior to, you know, the 1990s was that, at least from my perspective, this was the obvious thing to look at. Okay, any of our theories of market inefficiency are going to have some sort of story where the market either overreacts to information or underreacts to information. If the market tends to underreact information, you expect to see continuation. Stock price goes up, you know, from 10 to 15, but it was an underreaction. So then later it goes up from 15 to 20. Or it could be an overreaction. It goes from 10 to 20 and then back to 15. So from our perspective, that was sort of the obvious type of test that you'd want to run if you want to think, you know, as first principles on market efficiency, does the market react appropriately to information? Okay. So what we do in that paper is we look at lots and lots of different intervals. You know, we're, we're looking at different holding periods, uh, different holding periods and different formation periods. So we would look back three months, um, rank returns based on the past three months, hold for the next three months, hold for the next six months, hold for the next nine months, hold for the next year. Then we look at um, a look back period of six months. And again, looking at returns of three months, six months, nine months, and a year and so on and so forth. So we looked at, you know, lots of different intervals and then did a careful statistical test that would control for the fact that we're doing some data mining and, um, and then ask the question, do we find more excess returns in, in all these strategies that we would expect from chance? And the answer is yes, we could very soundly reject the hypothesis that returns were basically following a random walk. Just to, just to follow up on the, on the point with respect to holding periods and the periods to measure momentum, um, you mentioned you looked at a lot of periods in the paper, but with, both with respect to the, you know, how you were measuring it and the holding periods. What did you find were sort of the best periods in, in terms of momentum? The one that we focused on in the 93 paper was the six month, six month strategy. Now, one thing that we also found though, uh, and, and Jay and Ishan looked at this in other uh, contexts as well, was 
if you look at um, returns in a one month period, um, there was strong evidence of reversals. So what goes up in, you know, this month is going to tend to go down a little bit the next month. So actually the best strategies were ones where we would have say a formation period of six months, and then we would skip a week uh, and hold it for the next six months. So we did quite, you know, quite a bit better by skipping the week, which basically takes away that uh, reversal effect. You know, when you look at the way practitioners use momentum right now, I think the probably the most predominant measure, at least for the people we follow, is this idea of 12 minus one momentum, which gets at what you're talking about with the short-term reversal, you know, 12 month momentum minus excluding the most recent month. I mean, do you think based on your further research, I mean, do you think that's a pretty fair way to measure momentum? Yeah, that's the way that, you know, there's various ways of doing it, uh, but that basic idea that you want to control for the one month reversal um, definitely makes sense. Another thing I always find interesting when looking at academic research, because those of us who use it typically use the long side of it and not the short side of it is, you know, when we had part, as Justin mentioned, we had Partha Mohan Ram on the podcast and in his paper, you know, the vast majority of the return came from the short side versus the long side. And I'm wondering when you looked at momentum, how that compares sort of the returns on the long side of it versus the returns on the short side. Okay. I'm tend to be very sympathetic with the idea that you expect to have greater returns on the short side. Okay. But that result that you get more on the short side. Um, isn't robust in the sense that it depends on how you adjust for risk. Okay. So it looks to me like, um, at least in historical evidence, there's certainly excess returns on the long side as well as the short side. Um, and it, you, you alluded to this earlier, but you know, when people look at momentum and why it works, there's tend to be two camps. There tends to be the camp of, you know, the risk-based explanation, you know, the efficient market type people. And then there tends to be you know, the behavioral based explanation. I'm wondering, do you see value in both of those? You know, you, you alluded to the behavioral explanation before, do you see much more value in that? Or do you see value in both explanations? No, I, I, it's behavioral. Um, I would, I, I don't put much weight on the, the, the rational stories. I mean, you can always quote with a rational risk-based story and maybe there's something to that, but, um, this is mainly a behavioral issue. I have a very recent paper where we look at Chinese A and B shares. Are you familiar with that, you know, the A and B markets in China? Yes. Okay. So they're exactly the same stock, basically. Uh, one, they both trade in China. Okay. But the A market is basically the domestic market where you use the local currency to buy the stock. And in the B market, you need access to U.S. dollars or Hong dollars to buy the stock. So, so the stocks don't exactly move in the same place. Um, the dividends are identical. So it's a, the best experiment you can have in terms of basically saying, I want an experiment where, um, the return differences have nothing to do with the fundamentals of the firm. It has to do with the, you know, the moods and, uh, views of the actual investors. And so what's interesting is that in the A market, there's no momentum. That's kind of well known. People talk about the fact that. In the Chinese market, you don't see momentum. Um, and in the Chinese A market, you see pretty strong reversals. Now the B market, exactly the same stocks in the sense of exactly the same dividends and exact same fundamentals. Okay. But those stocks do in fact show momentum and they don't find, you don't see reversals in those stocks. Okay. So it's, so it's the nature of the individuals that are generating these return differences. I want to ask you, you know, one of the things you alluded to in your 2011 paper is this idea that 
since the publication of your original paper, the excess returns from momentum maybe haven't been as strong as they were in, in the research. Um, and you sort of alluded then to that and you talked about the, the influence of 2009 on that. And I just want to maybe ask you, you know, what do you think about that? Do, do you think maybe momentum is not as strong now as it was in, in history or do you think maybe something else is going on? Uh, I'd be very surprised if it was as strong. I mean, again, I view this as a, an anomaly in the sense of uh, the markets underreacting to certain types of information. And, um, you know, in the 90s, you had Cliff Asnath's and a few of those guys trading on momentum, um, but very few institutional investors, very, you know, a lot of them were buying winners and so on and so forth, but there weren't a lot of hedge funds that were very seriously trying to, you know, arbitrage away this momentum effect. After 2000, uh, just lots of these quant equity guys and almost all the quant guys that I talked to had momentum one way or the other in their models. So it'd be very surprising if, if the influence of those investors didn't in fact have an effect on return patterns. Um, so we do have, you know, weaker momentum after 2000, um, a big part of the weaker momentum of after 2000 is kind of a really bad period for momentum, you know, between what, 2007, 2009. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would find it surprising if that strategy works as well going forward. One of the things we like to highlight whenever we talk about factors on our podcast is not just the strengths, but the weaknesses. And I'm wondering if, if you had to talk about what the major weaknesses of momentum are, or are there certain things you would highlight? Um, I'm not sure how I'd say weaknesses of momentum. I mean, again, um, unless you want to say that, I, I would say the main weakness is this is a very simple strategy. Everybody is aware of it. Um, so it's very unlikely that you can make money using a very simple momentum strategy going forward. Okay. That doesn't mean that momentum can't be part of a more sophisticated strategy, but, um, it's too simple on its own. One of the other things you talked about in that, in that paper was the idea that, uh, stock momentum is driven by industry momentum. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you found by that, about how much of the momentum in stocks is maybe explained by industry momentum. Um, yeah, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think the industry momentum, uh, to a large extent is different than the individual stock momentum. I think a big part of the industry momentum is caused by leads, leads and lags. Um, I think there's, there's clearly a, a non-industry health to momentum. That makes sense. And did you also talk about the momentum in the economic cycle in that paper? Um, do you, do you find that momentum works better in certain parts of the economic cycle, or, or do you think it's, it's sort of irrespective of the economic cycle? Um, historically the momentum has worked better following full markets and, you know, with the economies of well. Um, the last one I want to ask with you on momentum before we, we sort of shift a little bit is, is this idea of fundamental momentum and price momentum. So the idea that, you know, some people would say your, your momentum signal is basically captured, you know, completely in price. Some may say you could effectively improve a momentum signal by looking at maybe firms that have improving EPS, for an example, or improving sales along with the price momentum. I'm wondering if you've, if you've done any work around that and if you have an opinion on that issue. Yeah, I, I think there are two, I would say there's independent signals, uh, but both signals are, are important. You, you would say that one signal subsumes the other signal. And um, I hit, I'm looking a little bit at that with J.D. Schnell. And... Um, it's, you know, I don't think we have anything we want to report yet, but, uh, in terms of the timing of the momentum, um, I think it does matter where you are in the earnings. 
So if, if you're buying, you know, right before the earnings announcement versus right after the earnings announcement. In looking at the time since you published that paper, um, what do you think are the major lessons that you've learned uh, when it comes to momentum investing? Um, I mean, we've done lots of different studies after that. Uh, I, I, I would think the most, the, the one thing that I initially found surprising was if you look at momentum around the world, um, the momentum strategy seems to work best in markets that you might think are the most efficient markets. Okay. So the momentum worked very well in the United States. It worked very well in the UK, um, did not work well in Japan, um, did not work well in China. Actually is Japan, um, has gotten, uh, you know, much more developed as a market, more efficient as a market. The evidence of momentum in Japan has actually increased rather than decreased. And if you look over the last 10 years, for example, uh, momentum's weak in the United States and it's weak in Japan. And, um, you can't really tell the difference, um, between Japan and the U S. So, um, this isn't the type of thing where as the markets get more and more efficient, momentum seems to go away. It seems to be sort of the opposite. Wow. That's very interesting. Do you have any theories as to why that might be? Yeah, I, I do. I think the momentum is, um, driven to some extent by investors that are, you know, fairly rational, except for the fact they're a bit overconfident and, um, if you look at the institutional investors in the Western world, uh, I think that's a, a reasonable characterization. And if you have, you know, fairly smart investors that are overconfident, they're going to tend to think that, um, they sort of know everything and, um, they're, they're less concerned about when I call adverse selection, you know, less concerned about the fact that they're trading against people that are smarter than them. And so if you've got a bunch of those investors in the market, um, the market in some sense is too liquid and a market that's too liquid is going to be a market that's going to tend to underreact to information. Okay. Cause you've got a lot of liquidity. I, I learned something, um, I know what I'm doing and I'm going in, I'm buying that stock. Well, if I can buy as much of that stock as I want without moving the price too much, um, that means the the price tends to underreact. So that's what was happening in the sort of more liquid developed markets. I think in the less liquid, uh, less developed markets, you'd get a lot of noise trading and these guys would move prices for no reason. And, uh, when that happens, you see reversals. Okay. So you get a little bit of what we're saying that's causing momentum in Japan in the 1980s, but that's offset. By a lot of guys trading on noise and moving the price because the market's illiquid. So sort of the reversals that happen, um, for that reason, offsets the momentum that happens, um, from the effect of it's driving momentum in the U S. Momentum is a factor that many investors actually tried to combine with other factors, particularly value. You wrote a paper in 2016 with one of our previous podcast guests, Greg Fisher, and also, uh, Ronnie Shaw was a uh, co-author of that paper where you showed that combining value and momentum actually outperformed value and momentum when run independently. Can you talk about what some of your findings were from that paper? Okay. Well, the basic idea 
is that the momentum and value kind of fits well together because the strategies are uh, not that highly correlated. So these are two signals that are advantageous, advantageous to, you know, diversify across. And again, um, we're not the first to say that. I think um, AQR was making that point as well. And all we're trying to say in this paper is that it's more efficient if you're combining them into one portfolio rather than, um, you know, take a, um, a value portfolio on one hand and then take a momentum portfolio and, and then basically own equal parts of those two portfolios. So again, the idea is there's different ways of basically selling this product. I could be in the business of doing ETFs and I have my momentum ETF and my value ETF and I tell my investors to hold a little bit of both. Um, what our claim is, is if we had one ETF, they can buy the two things together without perform. One of the things you discussed in that paper is how value and momentum can be sometimes challenging to combine because value tends to be um, a slower investment signal where momentum tends to be a faster type of signal. So how did you actually tackle that problem in your research? Yeah, I don't think we, I don't think we did a great job addressing that. Um, and I think that's just a general um, challenge to anyone in the squad space. Uh, and I don't have a, a great solution. Uh, it's an engineering problem, really. And so anyone that's a quant investor, this is something uh, that they just sort of have to address. Uh, you've got to think in terms of the speed of your signal and the liquidity of um, the assets that you're going into. So in the extreme case, if you've got a very, very fast signal, uh, it's better be the case that you're going in and out of stocks that are relatively liquid. And if you've got a very slow signal, um, you can be a little bit more patient and get into and out of um, less liquid stocks. So um, I don't have a, a quick formula here, but um, if you're running a quant fund, um, this is something that you've got to take very carefully, the liquidity of each of the stocks, the speed of each of the signals, how to combine all that together to form a portfolio. I want to shift gears and talk about another paper you wrote. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of wealth creation sort of in certain areas of the country, you know, specifically Silicon Valley, but you wrote a paper talking about the relationship between firm value creation and location. And I'm wondering if you could maybe just talk about the major findings you had from that paper. Okay. That's an interesting paper. Um, and. A couple of things I ask of people, you know, the question is, if you're trying to describe uh, value creation in firms, uh, what is more important um, as an attribute, the industry they're in or, or where they're located? And, and the answer everyone will say is, of course, it's the industry. Um, and that's correct. Um, what's surprising is that location um, is also important, not as important. Uh, maybe one third is important in terms of describing what's, what's leading its returns. Um, the other thing that people find surprising is I ask, you know, I say there's, there's two cities, metropolitan areas in the United States. And if you look at all the value created by new firms in the last 50 years, these two cities dominate. And the question is, what are those two cities? 
you guys probably should be able to guess those two cities. I guess I would say San Francisco, the Bay Area, and New York City, maybe? It's, it's, the Bay, it's the Bay Area and Seattle. And then the question is, um, if you look at all the new firms created over the last 50 years, what percentage of the value is created by firms in those two locations? What would you say that is? This is all new public firms. I mean, I'm totally guessing here, but when you think about the top firms in the S&P 500, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, uh, I don't know, maybe like 40 or 50% of the total sort of value. Am I close or no? Okay. It's, um, when I last looked, it was about 80% and it could be up to 90% now. Uh, it's most of the value is created in just those two cities over the last 50 years. And the interesting thing is it's not just the tech companies. Okay. Seattle's been amazing. Um, like Costco, if you look at, you know, the retail space, um, Costco's done the best and that's the Seattle company. If you're looking at sort of retail fast food, um, Starbucks has been the best. That's Seattle as well. Um, so you've got lots of different types of firms as well. So yeah, um, location seems to be incredibly important in terms of value creation. Um, one thing that we've looked at was, um, sort of stock returns. We, we were basically looking at cities that we would call glamour cities versus value cities. Okay. And, um, we would get a measure of sort of glamour value at the city level. And, um, I guess the easiest way to do that is to look at the average market to book ratio of firms in each city. And the cities with the high market book ratios are the values, are the glamour cities, the ones with the low market book ratios are the value cities. And you can, you know, do sort of the same type of regression that we're used to you doing or regress returns on the book to market ratios of the firms themselves and the book to market ratios of the cities. Okay. Um, basically the idea is the glamour cities are associated with high returns relative to the growth cities. And this was extremely important in the 1990s. That's really interesting. You know, uh, you mentioned the idea of book value and, you know, one of the things, you know, book value in our, at our world is very under fire these days because of the idea of intangible assets. And I'm just wondering, how did you deal with the, uh, the difference between mark, market value and book value? How did you deal with intangible assets when you looked at that? Okay. We did it, um, just to a very simple, um, market to book ratio where we don't take that into account. Um, there was a paper by a couple guys at Wharton that had adjusted market to book ratios. We used their measures as well. And they were adjusting for intangibles. Yeah. And by the way, anyone taking that idea that Sheridan just talked about, um, and putting that into an ETF. Uh, just make sure he gets a cut and we get a little small piece of the fees too. <laughs> just shake. Another thing you looked at the paper and the paper was this idea about, you know, certain, do, does location matter more for certain types of companies? So for instance, large versus small or new versus old or in certain industries. I'm wondering, was the location effect different in, it, in any of those types of scenarios? I think for the new companies, location matters the most. So um, it's a new company thing. New companies know that. 
And so the cities that we list as our glamorous cities, those are the cities that have most of the IPOs. So like 90% of the IPOs are just a small number of cities. Before I uh, hand it back to Justin, I just wanted to ask you one about one other paper you wrote. You know, one of the ideas that's, that's been a huge idea in the markets recently is this idea of disruption. And if you, if you could sort of measure the disruptive climate, and you, you wrote a paper where you looked at, you know, whether you could develop a factor based on the disruptive climate and then sort of how that influenced factor returns. And I'm wondering if you could just summarize your findings in that paper. Okay. I think you're referring to a theory paper where we're talking about that in theory, not in practice. Um, in... Yeah, so I've done a little bit of that, um, nothing published, and looking at ranking firms by, again, um, intangible capital, R&D, things like that. And um, when you do that, you show very strong excess returns in the 1990s. Okay, so the idea was there's disruption in the 1990s, and the firms that had uh, a lot of intellectual capital, did extremely well in that period. And again, um, firms located in San Francisco and Seattle did extremely well in that period. And not just the tech firms. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, in a disruptive climate, you want to be around smart people is, is sort of the, the bottom line on that. Just before we wrap up, I had two more questions here. Um, the first one was about sort of how investors, professional investors utilize the research that's coming out of the academic world. So do you think there are any things that practitioners are getting wrong or they could do better when using academic re research to build real world investment strategies? Well, um, and, and again, you guys should tell me what you think. Uh, originally, the view of the academics was you know, once we publish our articles, it's kind of too late because it's in the public domain and everybody seems to know, you know, the idea. So, you know, it's, it's not worth too much. Um, when I talk to people, you know, that are in this business, um, they seem to, you know, be willing to take seriously, you know, old academic articles. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd say they're getting it right or wrong. But from the academics, we originally, you know, saw that and found that surprising. Now, it could be the case that um, the best thing that the people in the industry should be doing is reading the academic articles and then, you know, coming up with a twist on the ideas and, and thinking about a way of implementing it um, better. And I, I know a lot of people that are basically in that business. Uh, the thing that I actually find surprising, and I will say it's, what they get wrong. Um, but again, talking to people in this business, they've got models that to a large extent rely on the, um, you know, the assumption that investors are overconfident and they have strategies that try to exploit that overconfidence. Um, and again, I'd say the momentum strategy is a strategy that exploits investor overconfidence. Um, Given that, I find it surprising that the quant investors are still incredibly overconfident about the, the efficacy of their own models. Um, the mistake that was made twice in this business was that, that there are people that were in this business, I think, overestimated the liquidity of the markets. 
um, the LTCM breakdown, you know, to a large extent with a liquidity event. And I think in 2007, um, it was a liquidity event that killed the clock guys. So I, that's happened twice, at least. I'm not sure whether people in that business are taking the liquidity more seriously now than they were before, but, um, that was something they were clearly made a mistake with. And lastly, our standard closing question, based on your experiences in the market and the research that you've done, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be and why? Okay. For the average investor, yeah, I think in terms of advice, um, we both exaggerate for the efficacy of these models and also exaggerate the, the risk. So we've got two types of people, you know, one is advice of, you know, telling everyone to lean towards value and momentum and those sorts of things. Um, cause the history tells us that, um, and the others basically say, you know, you guys are uninformed investors just by the market and do nothing else. I think, um, it's something that's both sides exaggerate. I think that, um, I don't think it's too risky for retail investors to tilt a little bit towards these factors and to, um, you know, be a little bit active if that's what they like doing. The cost to doing that, I, I don't think is particularly large now. Um, the markets are pretty liquid and, um, you can trade without commissions. So as long as you don't do things completely crazy, I don't think you're going to lose your shirt on that. Um, as long as these guys understand that, you know, the first thing they need to think about is having a portfolio that's pretty well diversified. Um, but uh, on the other hand, these markets are pretty efficient. Uh, people like me were mainly in the business of doing history rather than predicting the future. And, um, so. I would argue that, um, I've looked at these markets and I think we've pretty thoroughly rejected sort of the final view of market efficiency, um, going, if you, know, if you look back in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, um, I think the evidence is that the markets after 2000, at least in the United States look reasonably efficient. Um, so I would suggest that retail investors, you know, go into this thinking that they can in some sense beat the market. Sheridan, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We look forward to continuing to follow uh, your research and we will put links to um, these papers that we discussed in the show notes. So thanks so much. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks. It was fun. Okay. Bye-bye. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.